Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. Very excited to be talking with Vicki Bean, former deputy mayor for housing and economic development under Mayor de Blasio, also a former housing commissioner uh, during the de Blasio years. Vicki is now back at NYU, uh, where she did not get much time off between leaving the city administration and starting to teach again shortly. Uh, she's the Edward Weifeld Professor of Law at NYU School of Law and a faculty of director at the NYU Furman Center for Real Estate and Urban Policy. Very, uh, very much looking forward to this conversation with Vicki Bean in just a second. Before we start that conversation, just want to point you to some of our recent reporting at GothamGazette.com. You can find our coverage of Governor Hochul's State of the State Address, the transition to the Mayor Eric Adams administration, and much more reporting there on a variety of topics and issues and many stories that you can't find elsewhere. Uh, So please do check out our latest reporting at Gotham Gazette and, of course, also our curated uh, and and diverse opinion section with a lot of interesting commentary from outside sources that we publish on a variety of topics with uh, interesting ideas for moving the city and state forward and much more. Here on the podcast, Max Politics, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts or uh, we have all the episodes at the Gotham Gazette website. We've had some really good recent conversations. After you listen to this one with Vicki Bean, you can listen to one or more of those. I've recently spoken with State Senator Jessica Ramos of Queens about some of her priorities for the new legislative session in Albany. She's got a several uh, plank agenda that she's really pushing, including an overhaul of childcare in New York State, which seems to be one of the big issues on the agenda in state government this year but a variety of other bills and uh, focus areas for Senator Ramos that we discussed in that episode. I also recently spoke with Representative Jamal Bowman, who represents parts of the Bronx and Westchester, about what's happening at the federal level and his representation of his district in Congress and what's happening around the Build Back Better agenda and much more. Also got his thoughts on Mayor Eric Adams and other issues. So check that episode out. And then also uh, among many others that I won't go into, I had a really good conversation recently with three uh, friends and colleagues and experts on taking stock of the de Blasio years, Mayor Bill de Blasio's legacy as mayor of New York City. That was with Sally Goldenberg of Politico, uh, Dr. Christina Greer of Fordham University, and Harry Siegel of The Daily News and The Daily Beast. So you can check that episode out as well, and, and I won't go into the many others. So let's let's get to our conversation here with Vicki Bean, who, as I said, was uh, most recently deputy mayor for housing and economic development under Mayor de Blasio until uh, the end of that administration just a couple weeks ago. She helped craft the de Blasio administration's Housing New York plan and its 2.0 version, which ultimately set the city on a course to build or preserve 300,000 units of affordable housing over 12 years. And at the end of the de Blasio years, that eight-year term, they announced that 200,000 of those units had been financed uh, per press release from the mayor's office in December. So we'll get into that and much more. Uh, Vicki Bean, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So let's let's start right there with uh, the big housing plan. This is obviously sort of the headline uh, housing you know program of the de Blasio years that you were intimately involved with from the beginning as the housing commissioner and then later as deputy mayor. Um, take stock a little bit 
for us in terms of what you think the administration achieved with the housing plan and how you're sort of, um, we haven't had a ton of time to reflect, obviously, but how you're sort of reflecting on that work now that you are uh, out of out of the city government after being in the administration for most of the eight years you you were you were gone and you came back. But how are you reflecting on the housing uh, plan and and the achievements thus far? Well, so so first, man, I mean the you know the numbers um, do merit some attention. Um, I mean we did. Uh, finance the new construction or preservation of more than 200,000 homes in that eight year, despite a pandemic and, and the economic consequences of that pandemic. And that's, you know, enough to provide housing for the entire population of the city of Atlanta. So it's not, it's, that's a lot. Um, And you see that, of course, in the faces of the people who get to move into those apartments or who get to stay in those apartments. And so, so that's an incredible um, achievement in and of itself. But I, I think um, what I am really proudest of, and I think what, what bears reflection as we go forward is the way in which we really changed the structure of housing production and, and strain, changed some of the basic DNA of how the agencies work. So, First and foremost is that almost half of those um, 200, more than 200,000 homes are affordable for people making less than 50% of AMI and of area media income. And that was a real moonshot. I mean, we you know, went into the Housing New York plan hoping to achieve 25%. Um, although we thought, based upon what had been produced in earlier years, we thought that was a real stretch. Um, and we were able to almost double that, um, which is a you know which is a major achievement. Um, but also we we just changed some of the fundamentals of the way that the agencies worked with communities, worked with residents, uh, obviously, uh, mandatory inclusionary housing was a major, change in our relationship with every community, because it really said anytime buildings are built in a neighborhood with government assistance, whether that government assistance is, uh, you know, a tax incentive like 421A or rezoning, anytime housing is built with government assistance, it has to come with significant share of affordable housing. So that really said to neighborhoods, look, when you see your neighborhood grow and you see new buildings going up, you can rest assured that a a significant share of those are going to be affordable to people who live in the neighborhood, to people who want to move to the neighborhood. And that's, uh, I think that's a, a major change. But also, we we really try to work with communities to say, we understand that housing alone is not enough. Housing has to come with schools to support it. It has to come with parks that, um, that those residents can use. It has to come with job opportunities and healthcare opportunities in the surrounding neighborhood. And so we really tried to take a, a very holistic view to what needed to come along with the 200,000 homes that we were uh, we were financing. 
So those are, I think, major changes. And, and there are many, many more ways in which we, I think, change the fundamental um, way in which the agencies thought about what their uh, jobs are and, and how best to provide the housing, but also in terms of the relationships between the agencies and the communities. Can you describe um, for people a little bit about sort of the um, the challenges and decisions that have to go into um, how how the city uh, finances uh, affordable housing uh, preservation development and and those affordability levels and this was sort of always one of the tensions right of of this plan and of the implementation of it and again you know hesitate to always you know talk in the in the big sweeping terms because this is about where people are going to live right this is out about actual uh, homes and families and and individuals and and where they live but the tensions around um you know financing this and that um you know the the push often during the administration was around, are you right-sizing it? And you just said you exceeded expectations in terms of financing uh, affordable housing for those at lower incomes. But there was always this sort of tension, this sort of push about whether this program, this plan was right-sized for deeper levels of affordability um, and, and how that relates to, to the actual financing. So it's a complicated set of, of issues, Ben. I mean, one is um, just to start with the obvious, the economics of providing housing for the very lowest income families it, are, is very difficult. Um, you know, typically our buildings, uh, in our buildings, a family has to pay 30% of its income for housing related expenses. So that's generally the rent plus electricity or whatever is providing um, heat. So if you take, you know, uh, let's say 30% AMI, you're talking about somebody making a family making $20,000 or less. And, and frankly, 30% of $20,000 doesn't keep the lights on. It doesn't, you know, pay what it costs to run a building. So that means you've got to have additional sources of subsidy beyond just the mortgage on the on the um, on the building. And so so the first issue is building and financing for the lowest income families takes an enormous amount of of money. And so by definition you're providing fewer homes with the same amount of, of money um, that's allocated. So that's that's problem number one, is just how do you make the economics work? The best case scenario is you build a building and then you help subsidize the monthly rent through a voucher or that kind of thing. But vouchers are very, very limited. And so that's just not an option for, um, for many buildings. So the first problem is an economic one. The second problem is really a, a broader policy one. Um, many communities, we heard over and over and over again, they want uh, housing for the lowest income households in the community, but they also want the community to be attractive when their children, for example, make 
make good, go to college, come back, make middle income um, uh, salaries. They want the community to be attractive to those community, to those uh, households as well. And they want housing to be available at those levels. So there's a basic policy question about how how wide of a distribution of affordable housing should there be and and who all are you serving? And then the last thing that that comes up there is really a question of of legality and also uh, equity and and fairness in the notion that um, under the under fair housing laws, we're prohibited from um, you know concentrating poverty. And so you want, again, to, to be compliant with the law, you want a, a range of housing that's available. And you don't want a building to just be the very lowest income uh, families, in part because it's not a resilient building um, in many cases then, because it's so reliant upon, for example, those other subsidies. So, so those are the kinds of considerations that that go into the question, and it's it's a complicated balancing issue. And um, over the course of the administration, uh, some of the the plan was reworked multiple times, as as of course it should be. Uh, you know, government needs to obviously adjust and and be nimble and rethink things, whether it's um, you know acknowledging mistakes or it's becoming more ambitious or whatever it was. And I think. All those things happened. Um, looking back on it now, do you think that the creation of this housing program, um, you know, it should have been designed with a little bit more of the of the focus on the very lowest income um, New Yorkers? I think that if we had had perfect um, foresight into what all would happen. Um, we might, we, we probably would have aimed uh, a little bit, we would have aimed for a higher share of the housing to be affordable at those, you know, 30, 40, 50% AMI. And, and what I mean there is a couple of things. I mean, one is that we, we counted on um, 421A as providing more housing at the 60 and 80 percent uh, AMIs uh, in our in our planning, right? We we counted on that, and of course, as you remember, there was a big fight over um, the you know the the re-upping of 421A, mm-hmm. and at the last minute, Governor Cuomo changed um, the benefit package uh, on that pretty substantially which caused us to end up with a lot of higher income homes at 130 uh, or 120, 110 um, percent AMI. And those are valuable homes to keep middle income New Yorkers um, housed, but they were far higher than the 60 and 80 percent than than we had really anticipated. So had we anticipated that from the beginning, had we you know, um, known that um, there would be a pandemic and a budget crisis that really uh, affected the way that we could finance um, uh, buildings, uh, we probably would have uh, aimed higher. But as I mentioned, I mean, when when we put in a, a target of 25%, that 
was a real stretch that was much more than had been done, we think, in prior um, uh, housing plans. Part of the issue there was that in prior housing plans, there hadn't been a lot of um, attention paid to exactly what the AMIs that were being uh, financed were. So it was hard to even know exactly what was a realistic target. We thought that 25% what was going to be um, really a stretch. So, so, you know, I think that had we had perfect foresight, we would have aimed higher. Um, but the fact that we achieved higher, I think, is is um, makes up for that. <laughs> One of the things that strikes me in this discussion that I don't I don't know that there's been quite enough conversation about um, is that sort of in conjunction with that that discussion, right? And that was a discussion that was happening throughout the eight years of the administration, or at least most of the seven year, you know, final seven years, let's say, um, about you know. Uh, is this targeted right? Are are the sort of details of the plan matched up well with the city's affordable housing crisis? Should it be more targeted to low, lower income families, and you know, very directly tied with obviously the city's uh, homelessness crisis? That that conversation was happening the whole time. There was also sort of the to me and and you know, disagree. Um, but, you know, to me, this was absent of this question of whether that could be done in conjunction with better use of mandatory inclusionary housing by pursuing more housing development in, uh, you know, wealthier neighborhoods where we saw at the very end of the administration, obviously, the Gowanus plan uh, go through, the Soho plan go through, and I want to talk about those a little bit more in, in a few minutes, but that mandatory inclusionary housing and sort of leveraging the the, the market better, you know, that was really, um, that program is really designed to do that in wealthier areas of the city, and that wasn't really maximized for most of the administration. I'm wondering, you know, if, if that make sense to you to think about it that way? If there's things um, you agree with or, you know, disagree with about sort of the questions around, you know, mandatory inclusionary housing to me is one of the things that, uh, you know, the administration, it should be right up there in the, in the, you know, in the discussion of the top sort of major accomplishments of the de Blasio uh, years, but it also wasn't necessarily used to its, to its full advantage. What do you think about those thoughts? Well, I think it's it's easy to say we should have targeted or we should have um, tried to rezone um, some of the wealthier neighborhoods earlier on in the administration. I, I think what gets lost in that, and I, I certainly I was a um, a proponent of that, as you can see in the work that we did um, at the end of the administration in Soho and and Gowanus. But at the same time, you know, rezonings tend to come with both housing and other amenities, investments in schools, parks, those kinds of things, as I mentioned. And we were also hearing calls from neighborhoods that felt like they had not been uh, invested in. They had not gotten those kinds of investments. 
and desperately needed new schools, new parks. And so we were trying to address both of those concerns, right? Let's invest in neighborhoods that have not seen the kind of amenities and the kinds of investment that they should have seen. And let's require more from neighborhoods that are already amenity rich, but you know, but will by definition be seeing um, more investment when housing comes in. So we were trying to balance both of those things. And I think had we, you know, immediately gone into a neighborhood like Soho, Gowanus is is um, difficult because Gowanus, as you know, there were already planning efforts and a lot of work being done on Gowanus um, at the beginning of the administration. It was just a a slow process in part because of the the need for cleanup and the involvement of of so many different agencies between, um, you know, the environmental remediation that was necessary and all of the work that was necessary on on stormwater and drainage and all of that. So it was just something that took a long time, but was very much underway during even the early years of, of the administration. But had we gone first into Soho, for example, I think people would have said, what are you doing? That's an already amenity rich neighborhood. Why aren't you investing in neighborhoods that where the housing investment can make a big difference and can leverage um, getting the kinds of schools and parks and other things that the neighborhood needs. So again, I think, you know, you have to have a balanced approach to this. Um, So our initial rezoning, remember, was East New York. And the reason why we went to East New York is, first of all, it was one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city that had not seen investment um, of the of the scale necessary uh, for decades, but had room to grow because it was smaller than its its population in the 40s and, and the 30s and 40s. And it had um, secured resources to do a lot of, of preliminary planning and community engagement through programs of the Obama administration. So it made sense to us to go there first, but you know, I certainly understand the, the criticism that, well, maybe you could have done both at the same time or something like that. Um, that's really a capacity problem. But also I do think it's important to remember that one of the, the key achievements of the administration in my mind was the, the where we live process, the fair housing analysis that HPD and NYCHA and about 20 other agencies did to really look at what are, what are differences between neighborhoods and what explains those differences and what can we do about the inequities that we see when we really look hard at what, what are the health indicators of one neighborhood versus of another? What, what are the graduation rates? What are the test scores, et cetera? And when we looked hard at that and said, okay, well, what are we going to do to solve those inequities? Um, making more affordable housing available in neighborhoods that already had wonderful schools, wonderful job opportunities, et cetera, 
was front and center there. I'm not sure that had we, you know, tackled Soho in 2014 or 2015 after um, after MIH was passed, that you know we would have had the support because we hadn't yet really laid the foundation of showing just how much inequity there was and just how important it was for all neighborhoods to bear a share of the city's growth and of the city's need for affordable housing. Interesting. Um, you know, it's interesting. You, you, you got it. One of the first things that I was thinking, uh, as, as you were speaking there, which you, you said a capacity issue, you know, one of the, one of the first things I was going to ask you, if, if you didn't say that directly was, well, well, why not a couple of, you know, a couple of these at a time. Uh, and obviously, you know, the Gowanus process, as you mentioned, has been a very long one. And, and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about how to make sure that some of these um, neighborhood plans and rezonings don't take um, don't take so long. Uh, obviously, that was an, an exception. But, um, but, you know, it doesn't didn't necessarily have to be Soho. It, it could have been a variety of, of other uh, neighborhoods. Of course, selecting those and getting some buy-in from local leaders is, is challenging sometimes and, and very important. And the mayor has spoken to that many times about when asked about, you know, the neighborhoods that were, were chosen for rezonings and where they moved ahead, that that was when there was a really... Um, you know, sort of willing partner in the city council. And, and we, of course, saw others that kind of either never went anywhere that you wanted to do or some that went fairly far along, like in Bushwick, but then fell apart because of challenges between the administration and the local member. But one of my first thoughts was, well, well, why not East New York and, you know, neighborhood X, let's, let's just say Soho, but I don't think that would have been on the table at the time at the same time. And, and you mentioned capacity. Is that a lesson for, um, you know, the Adams administration? Is there something now, um, you know, that you think uh, the Department of City Planning, uh, HPD, uh, other other city entities really need to be bolstered to sort of take the type of assertive action um, on a faster timeline that the city seems to need to you know, have any real hope of of making a significant shift in the affordability crisis and the lack of housing, um, you know, development to keep up with population growth. And that's a great question. I think I think the answer is in is in two parts. I mean, one is yes, those agencies need additional capacity in part because you know they're being asked to do more and more. I mean, the the staff at HPD and HDC to deliver 200,000 um, 200, homes was not that much bigger than the staff that we had to deliver far fewer, right? And so you're asking people to do a lot more um, and, uh, and that's just not sustainable over the long run. So there does need to be um, capacity, you know, increases. I'm I'm concerned about the notion that there's a uh, you know sort of a freeze on all hiring or a, or a cut a standard cut across all departments because not all departments saw uh, significant increases in in staffing in the in the um, uh, in the the De Blasio administration. But the second thing is that. I think we as a as a polity and uh, certainly elected officials have to understand that 
when requirements are imposed, they impose costs and they need to come along with the budget for the staffing and the costs that they impose. So every time you add another step to the process and, and the step may be, you know, incredibly appropriate or necessary, but every time you add a step to the process, you, you increase the cost of the housing and you delay the time when the housing will be available. And so that's something that often gets lost. We kind of pretend that, you know, we can have our cake and eat it too, but the uh, city council over the de Blasio administration imposed a lot of new requirements. And, and again, I'm not saying that those requirements weren't appropriate, but they need to come with a hard nosed analysis of, well, what are the costs that this is going to impose? How much is this going to delay housing? How much is it going to increase the cost of housing? Which by definition means that you can build less of it with the same amount of money. So we need to be sort of harder nosed about the cost that we're imposing. So during the time that we were trying to you know, finance the 200,000 homes, we were also seeing very strict um, in, increases in the stringency of the requirements, for example, lead testing. And perfectly appropriate, right? We don't want any child to suffer the effects of lead poisoning. But that has to come with a lot of enforcement uh, tools and a lot of additional inspectors, that kind of thing. And, and it doesn't always come with those, right? The, the city council passes the requirement, leaves it to the administration to budget, but there's often a disconnect between those, those two times. And so I think the lesson um, for the next administration is we really have to pay attention to the costs that we're imposing and make sure, especially on enforcement, that we're bringing along the resources that are, that are required to actually enforce those requirements. Enforcement is never sexy, right? I mean, adding additional housing code inspectors or additional lead inspectors is not what makes headlines, but it's incredibly important and very, very necessary if the agency is going to have the capacity to do things like more rezonings or more um, community engagement to uh, to bring communities along on those rezonings. In, in terms of um, making more neighborhood rezonings and community plans and neighborhood development projects happen, um, are there other key lessons? Um, are there other things you would suggest to the Adams administration? Um, you know, uh, the, the new mayor didn't put out an especially detailed housing plan during his run, but he laid out some some pretty significant principles, including um, looking to to upzone uh, more wealthier areas of the city so that those areas would add affordable housing. Um, he seems to be, uh, generally speaking, at least, um, you know, someone who's sort of pro-development and wants to supercharge uh, some of that work. Um, 
are there are there keys to to making some of that happen or even if it was just to to try to realize some of the rezonings and neighborhood plans that the de Blasio administration didn't get to are there sort of other lessons learned or or advice you you have in terms of making these um these projects happen well so the first thing that i would say is my advice to to the new administration would be seize the moment that you have with the state we we tried for 8 years to get the state to lift the cap on residential floor area right in in new york city today the most that you can um, build in in for residential is 12 FAR floor area ratio, which means basically 12 times the the lot size um, for residential development, where you can build much higher for commercial development, much, much um, more uh, space for commercial. That makes no sense. If if you can if you can support a larger commercial building, you should be able to support a larger residential building. But we got total opposition um, in Albany for that. The governor has proposed lifting that cap. And I, you know, one of the things that I would certainly advise the the Adams administration to do is to seize that moment and run with it and see if we can't lift that constraint. Because people can say and often said to me, why aren't you rezoning the Upper East Side? Why aren't you rezoning the Upper West Side um, or you know, other parts of, of Manhattan? And the answer is you're pretty much already in most areas already at the cap. So there's no place to go in terms of actually adding capacity there. So the lifting that 12 FAR cap is a, is a major um, step that, that would help. The second thing that I would say is, I think one of the most important lessons that we learned is that housing, that you have to work with communities holistically. And as I mentioned earlier, you can't just say, um, we're going to provide new housing here. You need to bring along all the other things that come with it. And one of the things that that I was very committed to when I was at HPD is I separated the planners from the financers and made neighborhood planning a separate unit within HPD. It had been basically just to service the rezonings needed to secure new housing, but it wasn't focused on all the other things that a neighborhood needs. And it wasn't particularly focused on working with a neighborhood to think about what the neighborhood wanted its future to be. So I think it's really important to to double down on that approach of saying to communities, we're here to work with you to achieve the vision that you have for your community. And we understand that that will require not just housing, but all the things that have to be there to support the residents of that housing. So those are two lessons that I would really push. And in terms of um, other other dynamics to the puzzle, uh, there was early on, uh, there was an attempted move to rezone parts of Flushing. Then, as I mentioned, there was a, that didn't go very far. Then there was um, the Bushwick 
rezoning that went a bit further but fell apart when um, uh, there were irreconcilable differences, let's say, between uh, City Councilmember Antonio Reynoso and, and the city. Uh, on those, but but not specifically those, those types of situations or just making the vision um, happen, how important is mayoral leadership in this, uh, whether it's deal-making, arm-twisting, uh, rallying public support, showing up in communities with the vision? Um, is that over valued by people like me and others, you know, who sort of wondered sometimes, you know, wh- whether Mayor de Blasio was, was, you know, not being active enough in sort of setting out a, a real housing and planning vision in a, in a more specific way when it came to these neighborhood plans, or is that uh, our mayors sometimes too much of a lightning rod and wouldn't be helpful? What, what's, are there lessons there for Mayor Adams as he's, you know, as I said, laid out some pretty big principles that will very likely mean some some political battles. And you can't really do that much on land use in New York City without political battles anyway. But, you know, he's he's potentially going into some of those. Um, how important is is that mayoral leadership to making some of these things happen from from your experience? Look, I think the mayor has to set the expectation and the mayor has to say, every neighborhood has to bear some share of uh, of the city's growth and the city's obligations for affordability. Um, I don't think it's necessary for the mayor to show up, for example, um, although Mayor de Blasio did in, in many, many instances, but, but what's important is to lay the basic expectation and to say to every council member, Look, I respect your advocacy for your community, but my job as mayor is to see the needs of the city as a whole, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that the needs of the city as a whole are achieved. I'll work with you to to find the right balance to try to make sure that what we are doing to achieve the city's interests are as respectful and accommodating as possible for your neighborhood's interests. But at the end of the day, it's a citywide issue. It's a citywide problem and it requires a citywide solution. And is that where, you, do you think it's important for the mayor and the mayoral administration and you know, deputy mayors and so forth to sort of present to the public um, you know, here is, uh, I don't want to get into, uh, we don't, we don't really have time to get too much into the discussion around comprehensive planning, but, but short of a very uh, involved, detailed, legally mandated comprehensive planning process as has been proposed, um, but, but is, has not moved forward at this point. Short of that though, is it important for a mayoral administration to sort of sell the public, uh, explain to the public sort of that citywide view of saying, we're going into uh, neighborhoods X, Y, and Z over the next two years because every neighborhood needs to do its fair share and get its fair share. Uh, you know, this is this is not just about you know the city doing anything to to neighborhoods. It's about it's about development and it's about opportunity and so forth. 
is it important? And, and was that, you know, is that a little bit of a lesson learned that it's important to really uh, try to try to do that? Or does it, do you think that doesn't really matter because when it comes down to it, you know, the people living in an individual neighborhood wind up really only caring about that. You know, the people in Soho, they don't really care that East New York and East Harlem got rezoned, you know, they, they really only care about, you know, kind of the proposal for their neighborhood. So I, I do think that there needs to be more discussion about what each community is doing. Um, you hear all the time, for example, um, you know, that Manhattan doesn't bear its fair share or that Manhattan south of 96th Street doesn't bear its fair share. But, but there are neighborhoods, Chelsea, for example, that have actually um, been incredibly accommodating of, of affordable housing and have a great many um, uh, uh, affordable housing, uh, affordable homes that have come online in the last eight years. Um, so I do think it's important to, to talk more about what different neighborhoods are contributing. One of the, one of the achievements I think of, of the housing plan was that we did provide housing in every single community district across the city, some more than others, to be sure. Um, but every single community district got some affordable housing uh, finance during um, during the de Blasio administration. But, but comprehensive planning, you know, it's one of those things that, um, that sounds like a no-brainer in the abstract, but like so many tools, it can be misused and it, it tends to favor uh, people with more resources, right? So the neighborhoods that already have um, more resources can hire attorneys, can hire planners, can get pro bono work from uh, people who live in the neighborhood. Those kinds of things are always going to be at an advantage compared to neighborhoods that are a much lower income and where residents are, you know, holding down two or three jobs just to just to make it work. So I worry about that. And I think you have to be very, very careful about not introducing yet another um, way in which people can litigate to stop what they don't want in their neighborhoods. So I worry that a comprehensive plan requirement would a slow things down for a long, long time. Um, and just while that's being done, while the comprehensive plan is being done, which isn't an easy process by any stretch of the ima imagination, but also that it will then provide yet another uh, set of tools for wealthy neighborhoods to block uh, development within their community. Interesting. Um, yeah, you know, I've heard uh, all sides of, of that debate, of course, and, and there's obviously um, officials and, and advocates and such who really want comprehensive planning uh, in, in some ways uh, for, for some of the same reasons you just cited against it in terms of, you know, sort of ways to sort of insist, um, you know, on communities uh, all doing their fair share and such. But, but what I've heard from a lot of uh, experts, let's say, who are sometimes quieter is that instead of all these requirements of comprehensive planning, we want a mayoral administration to sort of 
present a comprehensive plan of sorts to the public as a vision and sort of sell that and then go in and implement the pieces of it in somewhat more traditional you know, fashion. And that's, I guess, you know, a little bit of what, what I was getting at with my, my question. Um, well, that's Ben, if I could just say, sure, sure, mean, sure. we had a, we had a big debate at the beginning of the administration about, do we, do we lay out the 15 neighborhoods that we thought would be the best candidates for, um, for rezoning and, and why those neighborhoods were on the list. And in the end, of course, did not do that and and were criticized uh, roundly for not doing that. Our fear was that if you lay out, okay, here are the neighborhoods that we think uh, could and should um, be bearing more um, responsibility for uh, affordability, that you provide, you just provide them with notice that they can use to to delay, to litigate, to fight, et cetera. And so, you know, it's, it, it's a hard call. And maybe, maybe we got it wrong because maybe if we had said, here are the 15 neighborhoods, um, people would have said, okay, well, if you look at that, it's a balanced, it is a good balance between investing in neighborhoods that hadn't seen sufficient investment and demanding more from neighborhoods that are already well-resourced. But also it might have just set those uh, neighborhoods who wanted to fight um, off, uh, you know, on a preemptive strike. Mm -hmm. So it's I think it's a hard question. Gotcha. Um, The city's land use review process, ULERP, is do you think it's time for any adjustments there? Are there any changes to that process that you would love to see if you had your druthers? Um, You know, any any. Any special change that if you could just uh, make it happen tomorrow, snap your fingers and do it, you you would you would change. I think, and this is a big big ask, <laughs> but you know, environmental impact review is is just not working as everyone hoped that it would, right? And I think we need a fundamental reform there. Um, I'm not sure that fundamental reform is really possible because there are many, many entrenched interests um, in that process. But that would be um, at the first of my um, of list. And uh, I certainly uh, plan to, to try to think more about that back at, at NYU. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is, I think, you know, we have to limit uh, the number of bites at the apple. And a good example of that right now is you're seeing new, newly elected city council um, people say, well, I know that you've spent two years on a ULERP process and the only thing left is the city council vote, but I want you to start all over again because now I'm in office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the process engaged the community and maybe... Um, you maybe the newly elected council member has a slightly different view or a different view of what it is that the community wants, but the community has been involved already for two years. So, you know, so I think that's a real um, mistake and, and um, shouldn't, we shouldn't go down that path in a normal um, time. 
every developer tries to get any land use approvals needed before an administration changes. But here you had, you know, 18 months of delay because of COVID. So we just couldn't get through all the many, many things that were required or that needed um, land use approvals. So some of them are going to the, to the new council, but they have already been through lots of community engagement, lots of review. And to start all over again is, like I said earlier, that imposes two years of delay. That's a lot of cost and means that families are not going to be in a, in a stable, affordable, high quality home for another two years. So that's a serious. Uh, that's a serious problem. Um, it, it related to all, a lot of what we've been discussing um, is the debate over uh, more broadly over housing development. You co-authored a piece, um, a, a report, a paper <laughs> at the Furman Center in 2019 that it was published um, related to uh, what's called what you term supply skepticism uh, around housing supply and affordability and sort of taking on uh, some of the skepticism from people who, uh, you know, question uh, more housing development. And that's the other, you know, that's one of the other big questions, you know, I think facing the city uh, sort of, um, you know, from a a livability, affordability standpoint, but also, of course, politically as well here in the new administration, as you point out, also with a with a very new city council with mostly new members um, uh, who are just elected. What, what what are you thinking now? You know this this paper was was published in 2019. Then you came back as as deputy mayor, so you had some time in that position. Um, how are you thinking about the conversation around um, supply skepticism and the questions around you know building more housing of all types in in New York City? Um, and are there are there lessons learned from from the last eight years around um, the sort of city government approach to those questions? Yes, I th- first of all, I think based on my experience in government is that you really have to engage with community members and, and hear out their fears um, and hear out um, their concerns about what change will bring to their neighborhood. And sometimes those fears are, you know, my local store may close down and I, you know, I love that store. And, and I understand that. I respect that. I felt it in my own neighborhood and we have to listen and engage with people about those kinds of fears, but the fear that new housing will somehow, um, uh, raise the rents in the neighborhood, change uh, the neighborhood and, and push people out really aren't borne out by the evidence, which um, a lot of, of evidence in recent studies have shown that when new development comes to a neighborhood, um, the rents decline compared to where they would otherwise have been. What part of the problem in this discussion is People say, well, I rents went up. Well, but rents would have gone up whether that new building went in or not, because rents typically have gone up, right? Um, so it's not like you're going to see 
it's not realistic to assume that rents are actually going to go down. Um, but that's what some people, uh, you know, think is is the um, the standard of whether new new housing in a neighborhood has 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 achieved the goal of preventing rapid increases in rents. So I think one of the things that we really need to think more about, and, and we've started this at the city, is to think about ways of of enabling community members to feel more of a stake in what's happening in the community as a whole. So for example, in some neighborhoods in California, uh, when a new building is built, um, members of the community get shares in the stock of that new building. So they will see some of the of the profits, right, from that new building. Um, and one question is, does that change the way that people feel about development? Does it give them a stake in, um, in seeing that new buildings come in um, or, or not? And HPD put out a, a request for, um, basically a request for proposals about ways in which we could increase the ability of renters as well as owners to enjoy some of the, uh, you know, increasing um, uh, incomes in a neighborhood um, as more and more housing gets built or as the neighborhood just changes, even if housing isn't being built, which of course neighborhoods do. So I think those things all require or merit further exploration, but I think to assume that if you don't allow any housing, that somehow prices are going to uh, stay the same or go down is is not borne out by common experience. We're we're seeing it unfortunately with you know test kits and other other things when supply is restricted or when supply is um, uh, constricted in some way, prices go up, and um, and that's just the way in which markets work. And unless you're going to fundamentally change the market structure, you're you're not going to um, be able to control prices if you constrict supply. Interesting. Uh, we're in our last couple of minutes here with with Vicky Bean, former deputy mayor for housing and economic development. And and thanks for all the time. It's it's really good to hear uh, a lot of your thoughts and and reflections and advice. Um, last two questions. The on that on that subject, um, given everything that the de Blasio administration put in place, mandatory inclusionary housing, right to counsel to protect people at threat of eviction, uh, different housing voucher programs, a variety of of things um, and others is one of the pieces of advice now. And, and I don't even know if the new mayor needs this because it seems to be a bit of his perspective, but we're, we're yet to see, you know, that really uh, borne out by, you know, actual plans and implementation and such, but is one piece of advice now for the ad administration to pursue something of a building boom of housing in New York city, obviously with considerations for affordability and a variety of other things, but but are we at a point now where if you look at the data, uh, the numbers, the challenges, um, again, as I said, you know, housing supply not nearly keeping up with with population growth. 
is that sort of a, a piece of advice now to, uh, you know, to the Adams administration to really do a lot to pursue something of a housing building boom over the next uh, number of years? I think the city has to see more housing growth or we will stop seeing, um, you know, growth in our population. And I think what marks New York City as the greatest city in the world is the diversity, the energy, the innovation that comes from just having an incredible mix of of people, some who have been here a long time, some newcomers. Um, And I think we should be doing what we can to encourage the city being open to to newcomers. So I do think we need to pursue uh, a great deal of uh, housing um, and all the things that come with that housing. Like I said, it can't just be housing. Yeah. And lastly, um, going from that sort of macro vision to insider baseball, in terms of how city government is structured around housing, um, are there are there tips you have for the Adams administration? Where obviously, as we record this conversation on January twelfth, we're still waiting for official announcements about um, perhaps a deputy mayor for housing or some sort of top housing advisor. There's been reports of you know different people being named to that post in Department of City Planning and others, but. Um, in terms of how how the top levels of city government is structured and ensuring that um, you know housing policy is prioritized and gets its due, do you have any any things you know you are concerned about or you advise for the Adams administration to sort of structuring um, you know city hall and and mayoral operations the right way? Look, to to finance housing and to and all the things that have to come with it, one, you have to every agency has to know that it is a priority of the mayor. And when, you know, when buildings that HPD financed were running into problems of getting a building uh, permit or the fire department inspection or any number of things that have to come along with housing. The other agencies knew from Mayor de Blasio's statements that housing was a priority. So I think it's really critical that Mayor Adams make that clear. And my concern is some people believe that the fact that there isn't a quote unquote deputy mayor of housing and whatever um, means that housing is somehow less important to this mayor. I think he needs to make that clear. If he's going to experiment with a different structure, um, which you know I am in favor of innovation and experimentation, but but the position has to come with absolute clarity about the importance of housing and the importance of all agencies in city government cooperating with whatever is needed to make sure that that housing gets financed, built, operated, maintained. It it has to be a strong, clear statement. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. There's, there's, 
three or four things on my list here we didn't get to, but I've kept you long enough and I appreciate all the time and the, and the thoughts. Um, and, and I'll have to pursue those topics like a, a more uh, in-depth discussion on where uh, public housing and NYCHA is and fits in uh, on future episodes of the show. But, um, but Vicki Bean, appreciate the time and the thoughts and, uh, and we'll be looking for your, the, your next work out of, uh, out of NYU about where the, the city uh, could or should head uh, on uh, housing and other issues. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Ben. And thank you for all. I, I do want to say leaving government that, that I very much appreciate the role that the media played in shining spotlights in raising questions in pushing. So thank you for that. Appreciate that. Thank you. And, and be well. All right. Thanks so much. All right.